0: Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobek Books as we combine trad values and an indie spirit.
1: Hello. Hello
0: and welcome again to the Hopcast. We have reached show number 37 and we have a wonderful guest this week. Kate Bendelow is not only an author, she is a serving scene of crimes officer for Greater Manchester Police and what she doesn't know about forensic science and Dealing with a scene of crime isn't worth knowing after 19 years on the force. It's a fantastic interview, full of depth and quite it's, quite it's quite a graphic interview, as you can imagine, because, you know, we're not dealing with nice things, but Kate is wonderful. And so uh, we look forward to speaking to her a little bit later in the programme.
1: It's probably, to, for me, it's one of the most interesting just in terms of we haven't spoken to anyone on, who deals on that side of... Um, crime before and I just love the sort of matter of fact way she's able to talk about it and we did talk about her job quite a lot actually didn't we, it was fascinating
0: Yeah, coping strategies when you're faced with some incredibly and unexpected grisly scenes you, know, you just can't predict what you're going to find uh, and then the care with which you've got to uh, treat not only the victims but also the scene so...
1: so yeah, you have to have a sort of a scientific mind and um, sort of uh be able to sort of compartmentalise things, but you also need to have an emotional side to you. I think, you know, there's a lot of skills you have to draw on in that job, which I hadn't quite thought through myself.
0: No, indeed. So, a hugely revelatory interview with Kate Benzalow a little bit later. Uh, Now, it's the podcast, which is, of course, the podcast arm of Hoback Books, and we are independent UK producers and publishers of the following genres. Crime! Mystery. Thrillers! Suspense.
1: Now, I was doing someone who's lost their voice, not because I've lost my voice, but you're kind of on the verge of losing your voice. I'm
0: I'm not well uh, as we record this. And in fact, we had a, uh, a fairly healthy debate as to whether we were going to uh, not bother, but obviously we, we enjoy making the programme, but whether in fact I could possibly do it. Because let's be honest, uh, when one comes down with um, symptoms like a temperature... A regular cough uh, and um, there's other bits and bobs. <laughs> you know, your immediate assumption is that you've got it.
1: And there's me in a little box <laughs> quite close to you.
0: Yeah, we're, we're filtering the air. But <laughs> nonetheless, it is, it is um, it's a bit difficult. I mean, you know, I've started feeling symptoms about 48 hours ago wrote off most of yesterday and managed to get some work done some 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 audio editing but in terms of recording forget it i mean my voice is i did a long session on friday <coughs> excuse me <laughs> that wasn't for effect um and i'd probably recorded four and a half hours of audio which is on the upper limit of my stamina uh and then i just took to bed after that i was like i was wiped
1: he did and he slept for about four hours i i, I couldn't believe it but i mean that's, that's the problem you have with the sort of narration side of, of what you do that if, if that goes wrong your voice goes wrong there's nothing you can do
0: no I mean you know it happens to be that there's an absolutely massive backlog of editing to do as well on two projects that I'm recording concurrently and projects that we've got other people uh, wo- have worked on um, so we've got the the, um, uh, the the work of Judy Dakin narrating um, Blood Loss by Karina Swan and also Alison Mitchell, uh, Alison Mitchell, Alison Morgan, I beg your pardon. Not
1: well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alison Mitchell is a former colleague of mine who uh, commentates on cricket for, for Radio 5. Um, Alison Morgan's throttled as well. And, and to be honest, you know, uh, uh, much to their frustration, my editing pace has been been glacial. So uh, I do apologise. But as I've always said, the audiobook business, you know, the recording is only one thing, the editing is an altogether different experience and it takes forever to get it right. And so uh, that's where I'm, I'm battling away at the moment. But as you can hear, my voice is cracking up. We haven't even introduced ourselves. and oh, <laughs> who are sure. we?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: I'm Adrian Hobart, what's left of me, and you are?
1: I'm 100% Rebecca Collins.
0: <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Listen, um, publishing news, we didn't have a lot last week. Did we? we were at uh, Bloody Scotland. No,
1: I mean, I think Bloody Scotland was enough publishing news for one week anyway, because there was such a lot going on there. But um, a couple of things caught my eye. Um So one of them is uh, crime fiction related. Uh, This Halloween, we're publishing a book at Halloween, aren't we? We're publishing Wayland Babes by Judy Dakin, which isn't crime as such, even though she's a crime writer. It's actually an anthology of uh, interlinked ghost stories. But also this Halloween, there's a group of crime writers um, who've come together to um, uh, publish a crime anthology to help raise funds for Bernardo's. So included are Peter James, M.W. Um, Craven, whose wife recently won one of our competitions. Joe, yeah. Um, T.M. Logan and Trevor Wood. Uh, Trevor Wood is a, a UEA, um, MA, crime fiction graduate. So, you know, there's sort of a link there. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I just, I, I like when they do these sort of things and they come together and they do it just, you know, for a good cause. Um, so I'm going to look forward to
0: Actually, a story just occurred to me that, you, uh, that will appeal to you. I don't know if you saw it this week, but your favourite Man United player.
1: Oh, i got quite a few favourites. Is it Magnus, uh, sorry, Marcus, <laughs> Malcolm Rutherford.
0: Malcolm Rutherford, as you know him, or the rest of us uh, mistakenly understand as being Marcus Rashford.
1: That's why I got confused because people keep saying Marcus.
0: He's been added to the syllabus for uh, English language um, exams. Because of the persuasive power of his tweets, which changed government policy, and so kids are now going to look at the social media posts that uh, he used to improve the school's meal situation, and now, of course, he's working on on a literacy side as well. So uh, that's interesting. I think that's you know it's fascinating the, the power of, of someone of his ilk. I mean, he was absolutely adamant he wasn't going to back down and and let the government off the hook, um, and you know, subsequently, he's faced flack uh, from from right-wing commentators about it. But You know, it's one of those unarguable things. Kids need to eat. And he made sure that during the lockdown, uh, you know, kids who weren't getting school meals were getting some decent nutrition. Nothing wrong with that. But the other thing that he's, of course, been criticised for was missing a penalty in the final of Euro 2020. So I think it's almost like a, a backlash in that regard. But... um yeah, I thought that was an interesting... I think it's interesting.
1: I, I mean, the, the power of social media is, you know, it, it fascinates me anyway, because if somebody somebody well-known tweets something, <clears throat> it can just explode. It depends on who the person is. It depends on what it is. But I think in the case of um, uh, Malcolm Rutherford, it's partly because he's been there. So he he's not just pontificating from above, you know, like, we've had celebrities who say oh yeah we should do all this to encourage reading we should do this mm. but he's actually been in that situation so he's in, in, incredibly credible if i can say that um so yeah and i can see why you would the schools would want you to study that because the, the power of social media as we know as publishers it, it can make a massive difference and kind of related to that is i've, I've just today actually started trying to get into tiktok i signed us up for tiktok about two months ago and then just left it because I didn't understand it.
0: But I still don't.
1: But one of our authors, um, Jenny Ensor, said um, I've, we've just made a, a promo video for her book Silence, which is coming out in December. And she said it was one minute, two seconds long. And she said, take off two seconds and you can put it on TikTok. And I said, well, we have no followers on TikTok and I don't know how to use it. And she sent me a really interesting article about book promotion on TikTok. You don't need followers. If you just put all the right hashtags in, you lots of people will have will will be served your video and the more people that served it and liked it and blah 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 you know your usual happens quicker
0: it spreads
1: so i yesterday i posted one of our videos not jenny's a different one and it's had 600 people view it already in a day i don't know who these people are but if they all buy the book happy days Awesome. So that's the power of social media.
0: <laughs> well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Any other stories? I mean, I, I'm looking at the, the official top 50, and it, it won't surprise you to learn. There is a new number one in the UK book charts.
1: Uh, can I guess what it is? You may. Is it by a really tall chap? Yes. Is, does he own a Hobeck mug? Yes. I'm guessing it's the man who died twice?
0: Uh, well, has Richard Osman died twice? <laughs> That's the name of the book, yeah. Richard Osman is the second of the um, the stories, you know, the Thursday Murder Club follow-up, if you like, and it's gone straight to number one. No big surprise. It sold 1.4 million copies in its first, you know, the first book in this country. So, But what's interesting is that there are six new entries in the top ten. Okay. And most of those are written by...
1: Richard Osman? C-
0: ...celebrity authors.
1: Now, that leads very interestingly into another well, shall story. I just say who they are Okay, go on, then, now, go on. Mean,
0: and then we'll move on. Uh, well, Bob Mortimer's number two with his... Oh, his uh, fishing book, is it? I think it's his autobiography. Oh. <laughs> um, it's called Underwear. I've done the accent for you there. Um, so Sally Rooney's been shunted down to number four with oh, Beautiful shocking. World, Where Are You? Which I
1: haven't actually read yet, but because I have Richard got
0: Osmond it. Is at number three with, oh, with... Thursday Murder Club. Mm. And then guess who's coming at number five? Jamie Oliver with Together, which is his pandemic cookbook. Brilliant. <laughs> Together. Uh, and then other uh, well-known names. Well, the only other one that really stands out for me is Miriam um, Margole- uh, um And that is uh, uh, her autobiography, This Much Is True. And it's pretty... Who... Uh, Miriam my goalies. Is she a golfer? No, no, no. She's an actress. Oh. (laughs) It just sounds like
1: a golfing name.
0: I mean, I don't know what she was in in Harry Potter, but she's been in that. She's been in loads and loads of things. She's in lots... She's always the sort of... How do I put this without being rude? She's always the comic turn, the frumpy comic turn. Like Sue Pollard? Well, a little bit, you know. She's (laughs) sort of... Kind of that sort of hyper-mumsy kind of character that always turns up in something... That has Judy Dench or Helena Mirren in it. Oh, okay. I have just never heard of her. (laughs) No, she's pretty. The rest of the world's heard of her. Don't don't worry about that. But she has uh, basically uh, not held back, and there's an awful lot of people taking cover (laughs) with what she said about them. So uh, it's one of those. Yeah. So she's really, you know, not not, all. Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. So that's that's got a lot of traction in the papers the last few days.
1: Yes. So, yes, that reminds me of another news story, which I've actually dropped on the floor, so let me just pick it it up. Is that
0: good, folks. (laughs) You're listening to the Hot Coasters. Rebecca picks up her pieces of paper very quietly, as you can hear. (laughs) Right.
1: Right, so um, the uh, MD of Simon & Schuster children's books is uh, Rachel Denwood and uh, recently she spoke out at the Booksellers' Children's Conference about this this, this whole sort of um, cult of celebrities publishing books. I mean, of course, she was specifically talking about celebrities writing children's books. There are a lot of them at the moment, mm-hmm. aren't there? I mean, yeah, you know, there are. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dermot O'Leary's written some books about cats. I don't know if you've heard about those. No.
0: I, I just try and ignore the whole... <laughs> it's a part of the industry I'm just not interested in.
1: And then, of course, we've got David Walliams, you know, who's been very successful. And, you know, I'm not disputing his talent. I, I've read one of his books with the boys. Well, I am disputing his talent. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, he, 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 yeah, <coughs> he like, um, <coughs> he's got like a a hard circuit into the brains of, um, you know, prepubescent children in the way that his humour is, well, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's roll without the, without the skill.
1: Without might, the depth. Yeah, yeah, without the depth. It's like surface roll doll, I call yeah. it.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. But you
1: can't, you can't dispute that it has had an appeal.
0: Oh, I mean, I've sold it's a bit catr- like, um, trillions of, of Captain of books.
1: Underpants, that sort of thing, you know.
0: Yeah, I quite enjoy those. The, the, is that Jeremy <laughs> Peace? Was it who wrote that. Or I can't Jeremy remember, Strong. Actually.
2: Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong. That's it. Yeah.
1: But well, the, the point of this um, was that uh, she's saying that publishers, although you know, it's a de- it's a, in terms of profit, it's a dead cert, isn't it? A celebrity comes to you with a with a reasonably well written book, you are going to sell it, you are going to make a lot of money. But she's saying, but they mustn't forget about new talent they need to put just as much backing and just as much effort into new talent because otherwise you know the sort of the creative soup as we call it will be just chunks of meat and no veggie
0: <laughs> no i I, no, I think there's a there is a problem with the cult of, of celebrity trumping everything at the moment and i actually think that well i've heard that from from colleagues of mine who are writing children's books um, that I used to work with at the BBC, um, Dan Walker being one and Ori Aduba being another.
1: Is that the dancing bloke?
0: Dan Walker, yeah, they're both dancing blokes because Ori won the, the whole thing uh, two or three years ago. Um, they've both been you know, writing children's books as well. Look, I mean, the fact is that people are being approached to do it. They're not actually going out writing them and then hoping. Oh. They're, they're basically fronting and, and a lot of it's sort of the hard lifting is done by other people.
1: The editing.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, the writing.
1: Oh, well, okay.
0: Um, you know, and, and the celebrity. I mean, look, do you think Katie Price has written one of her books? Don't think she's so. She's a very
1: intelligent woman. She's, she,
0: old, she's got bestsellers. She was Master all,
1: Chef. <laughs>
0: Yeah, she's, she's she's many things. But, I mean, the bottom line is that those have been ghostwritten. And, um, you know, the, the the thing that the celebrity brings is their name. And it's getting harder and harder. But actually, I would say, look, you know, yes, of course, we've got to look for new talent. And... We're looking for new talent at the moment. Just to remind you, you have a week to get your submissions <laughs> in, less than a week, for um, this year's opening of the HOBEX submissions. We've had,
1: you know, absolutely... I think it's 50 now.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. And given that we're we're going to read them all, uh, both of us, um, and offer a degree of feedback, it's going to be a long process. Uh, but we've been blown away by some of the names that have come forward. Anyway, that's that aside, we're, we're always looking for new talent. But actually, what's important is to... Is to nurture the people who have been around a bit, but aren't as big a name as.
1: So the middle, the
0: middle, yeah, the middle ground. I just no one ever talks about them, the meek. No. Oh, they're doing something for the meek. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, oh that's nice. The meek, you know. <laughs> Sorry, it's the life of Brian.
1: I know, badly
0: remembered, but
1: consider the lilies.
0: <laughs> it's all very well for the publishing, because it's easy to go for someone new, and give them three books in the in the in the spotlight. And then drop them, um, and it's easy to find a new slew of celebrities. I and mean, we have to wait for Celebrity Love Island and various other, you know, outlets to make s- stars of someone.
2: Mm. And
0: then, you know, you've got you've got new talent from there. Inverted commas. But the bottom line is, there are a lot of really talented authors who are falling out of the nest in the traditional publishing world,
1: and getting quite disillusioned as well. I mean, I know that quite a few are actually turning to self-publishing.
0: Yeah, they are all coming to us. <laughs> um, well, which is which is flattering, but anyway, you listen, have four
1: days left. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think I think we'll leave the news there, and uh, we'll get into the interview with Kate Bendelow because my throat is absolutely raw now. Um, as you may hear, it's getting a little throaty. Anyway, Kate Bendelow is uh, a, a, it's a bit, it was a wonderful interview, and you know we're we're getting we say this every week when we speak to someone. There's there's so much we get out of the the format, if you like, by giving people forty forty five minutes to tell their story. You get so much depth, but this is one that I'm sure everyone who listens to it will remember. Kate Bendelow, a serving senior crimes officer for the last 19 years for Greater Manchester Police and also a successful crime author in her own right. So uh, she's written books on forensics for authors, but also
2: her Her own own fiction. Yeah, her
0: own fiction. So (laughs) uh, she has a lot to offer in this wonderful interview with Kate Bendelow. Kate Bendelow, thank you so much for joining us on the Hopcast Book Show.
2: Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. Now, listen, we're not recording in video, but for, for those who can't see it, you've got a fantastic bookshelf behind you, including, unless I'm very much mistaken, your own novel.
2: Yep. Definitely dead. The first in the um Mya series, um, it was brought out um, by Bloodhound. It was published in May of this year. And the second um, book, Shattered Bones, is being published on the 25th of October.
0: Wow. So that's that's always a nervous time, isn't it? I mean, we, we release books every couple of weeks and, um, you know, we share the, the nerves of the authors. But uh, book one, how has it received so far?
2: it's i'm I'm really really pleased i've had some fantastic reviews and some really really good feedback about it so um yeah it's been nerve-wracking um it's not the first book i've written you might know i wrote um a non-fiction book the real csi a forensic handbook for crime writers um as much as i love that book and i was so proud of it i always said i wouldn't feel like a real author until um i had my fiction book published so yeah it was as you say massively nerve-wracking time um sort of reading reviews is, is is difficult but yeah it's it's been very well received up to now so I'm really pleased with it. So have
1: you always wanted to write a fiction book
2: then? Yeah always that that was always my intention um when I when I first started writing um the non-fiction book came about really by chance um when I went to Swanwick um Writers' Summer School in 2014. Um, I, While I was there, there were a presentation by Derbyshire Police, um, who was sort of talking through crime writers, how a murder investigation is carried out. Um, and whilst it was a very good course, I was sat listening to it as a CSI, a serving CSI, and a writer, thinking, I can see what... Doing from a police perspective, but I can see where it's not really giving writers all the information they need, it needs to be a bit deeper. So, I volunteered the next year to go back and run a course, um, just describing forensic techniques for crime writers. And then, on the back of that, the course was so well received, it was overwhelming. And um, people suggested I write the book, which I did. So, yeah, I always wanted to write, but never intended to write non fiction. So, that sort of came across, um, by accident, if you will. I
1: accidentally wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to do it. I want <laughs> to accidentally write a book now.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's it's wonderful because, I mean, a book like yours uh, has made a big difference, I think, to crime writers, particularly in the UK, because the one thing that I think most crime writers are terrified of is not being credible.
2: Absolutely,
0: um, yeah. <clears> and, <throat> and, but, I mean, at the same time, we were bloody scotland just this weekend up in sterling and of course, we, yeah uh, we had chris brookmeyer uh talking about uh, he you know they he was with them, mark billing and two of the, the best crime authors in the country talking about uh some of the criticism they get and um <laughs> he was saying that quite a few people who have some interest in whatever subject they, they're writing you know write in and say well you got that wrong and if you you know uh particularly around the, the sort of forensic side of things. Yeah. And he said, look, hang on a second. I'm an author. I'm a yeah. fiction author. Surely I'm allowed some licence to make, you know, stretch the truth a little bit. But I think that there is this debate, isn't there, that, you know, uh, you know, between, you know, telling a really rollicking good story, but also yeah. saying the right side of the science, the facts, procedure... Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And it it is a fine line. And, you know, I've there's so many really, really good books that I've read and thoroughly enjoyed, but there has been, like, forensic sort of mishap, if you like, something that has been described that just wouldn't happen. And it does make me roll my eyes and gnash (laughs) my teeth. But then I think it depends, really. Um, It doesn't... If the story's good, it doesn't massively detract from the stories. For example, I love... um, because I love Idris Elba. I loved Luther. I thought Luther was fantastic. Forensically it was completely off the mark. I remember one episode <laughs> in particular when Luther rolls up at the crime scene and he goes, A socko oh, done. Yes, boss, it just left. Then he walks in the room and the body's still there. Now, I might have left a lens cap for my camera at a crime scene before now, but I've never <laughs> ever left a body. And again, it, that although it's annoying and it's frustrating and it's so easily researched, that sort of thing. There's lots of people out, like me out there who are happy to, to speak to crime writers and TV producers and what have you and help them get it right. Um, and like I say, it didn't distract because it was brilliant storyline. So it didn't distract me. It's just a little bit annoying. And I think the, the, the odd little bit of getting it wrong isn't such a big problem but I think particularly with the crime genre because it's so such a saturated um, area of crime writing uh, sorry of readers that like it don't insult your readers do a little bit of research and get it right I read recently something by an author I'll well, not name but I admire greatly who she men- mentioned something about not doing too much research to check the accuracy because they felt it detracted from the plot and I think that's a little bit of a cop-out, really. I think if you have respect for your readers, do the research and just make sure, that, you know, at least give a nod to it being in the right direction.
1: I think it's about getting the balance right, isn't it? Because it is, um, absolutely. I mean, Graham Bartlett said something yeah. similar. Yeah. He was talking about Line of Duty, and, you know, he was yeah. saying in in some way he can't watch it because he, mm-hmm. he can spot everything that's wrong, but, you know, if they sort of get the balance between Having absolutely. a certain degree yeah. of accuracy and credibility, but it's still going to be drama because, um, uh, absolutely, I think it, of course one it of is, our authors yeah. also said, Brian Price, I think it was, he said that yeah. if you had the time scale of real life forensics,
2: oh, that yeah,
1: would go on for months,
2: <laughs> it <laughs> would it absolutely, it would. I mean, yeah. you, you, there are things certain things you have to judge, and again, Line of Duty, I think, is perfect example. I absolutely loved it. I know, Graham. Cramatic <laughs> issues with it he say he's getting <laughs> he's, get, he's getting the drama right because I know there was one part in line of duty where they were doing the interview and they'd um they'd attended um one of the suspect's houses the night before and they'd got they'd recovered DNA and the DNA results had come back instantly it wouldn't happen in real life but you need it for that to keep that that drama and that flow and it's one of the things that I found really too too much knowledge is a dangerous thing and I know mm. I've struggled with it in my own writing where I've sort of thought, no, I'm really going to have to sort of push push this or work, around, work a, a way around how my characters are going to deal with how we would do things in real life. But yeah, if you were to document in detail, I mean, my first draft of Definitely Dead was I think it was sort of topping tap War and Peace with a word count because I'd gone on to forensic overload, and I think there was more fact in that first draft than there was probably in the whole of the the real CSI. Um, and it is a case of having to hold back a little bit, but I say drama. The drama has got to be the key thing. The story is the key thing. So yeah, it's it's there's, there's always a bit of a compromise. I think as long as it's like I say, you're respectful to your to your readers.
0: I think there's this moan that goes up amongst crime writers in a sense that they long to go back to the golden age where, uh, yeah, Poirot could walk in a room and you know, <laughs> two or, two or three sort of tiny clues could be enough to solve a case. Yeah. Uh, and then little no
2: CCTV, no right, DNA,
0: no no mobile phones, no access to the internet. Just no a gun- hunt.
1: That's yeah. all it needed was a hunt. Right. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So. Oh, thank you. Uh, I've just been presented with a. This is a blackberry, no, uh, a
2: mulberry, a
0: mulberry, a mulberry mm. from what to mulberry tree. Yeah, she's oh. not to enjoy herself. So, but this is how these interviews go. We'll have a, a an off uh, interruption, but anyway, uh, this is the Hobcast. If you weren't uh, weren't aware, this is Kate Bendler that we're speaking to. Uh, real life. uh Uh, forensics expert and uh, senior crimes officer for Greater Manchester Police. Um, But yeah, the moan that people have within the the crime community is technology and forensic advances and the ability of the police to use all sorts of new methodology that wasn't there 20 20 years ago, even five years ago, means that it's much harder for the criminal to get away with it in fiction, if you're doing it accurately, for very Absolutely. long. Um, do you have any sympathy with the, the, you know, that sort of uh, thing? You know, that, for instance, authors seem to somehow always contrive to make sure that the, the, the protagonist loses their phone as soon as possible.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I do have a lot of sympathy for it. And as I say, that is actually something I really, really struggled with in my, in my second book, the second Maya Barton book. Um, I had a real issue with one of my main protagonists thinking, oh no. And do you know, it didn't appeal, it didn't occur to me until I was sort of halfway through the first draft. And I suddenly thought, I've got to get rid of this phone somehow. It it occurred to me that he would have a phone and I'm thinking I have to get rid of it. And yeah, I really scratched my head with that. And then you can write yourself so much into a corner. CCTV, Mm. again, was problematic in book two, uh, but then I managed to turn that, uh, throw a a plot line in that, work that to my advantage. But it is so, so difficult. I mean, I I have actually thought, ideally, I would like to go back to maybe writing a book that was set in the 80s for the reasons you've mentioned. You know, um, it would be a lot easier. Um, it's it's hard for crime writers. It really, really is. Obviously, as a CSI, it's a dream for me. All the CCTV we have, all the, like you say, all the work we can do with computers, phones, DNA, fingerprints, et cetera. But yeah, for a crime writer, it's not good. I do envy Agatha Christie. She had it easy. Let's face it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she did. She did. Yeah. You know, put a vicar, a retired colonel. Uh, A damsel in distress and a couple of other figures, and and, and you've got a plot, really, haven't you? And um, yeah, Yeah, and a caddish millionaire. Um, (laughs) And now
1: they'd be putting it all on Instagram, doing selfies, and then you see the murder (laughs) in the background.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, let's get into your career then. Prior to the writing side of things, I mean, what attracted you to become, you know, forensics officer, you know, and and work in that field? Because yeah, so very specialized thing, and it takes a special kind of person to to survive that environment, I imagine.
2: (laughs) special kind of weirdo, I think you're trying to politely (laughs) articulate (laughs) that. I've I've been with Greater Manchester Police as a crime scene investigator now for 19 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I originally um, wanted to be a police officer, um, but at the time my unaided eyesight um, was way below standards. I wore glasses and I've had laser surgery since I wore glasses at the time and my unaided eyesight was basically blind as a bat. So um, I was absolutely devastated when I realised I'd sort of fallen at the first hurdle and wasn't going to get in the job. Um, I was working for Greater Manchester Police at the time in finance and my boss said to me, just go to personnel, speak to them. There must be other jobs out there that you can do. And I'd never heard of the calls we refer to still then the old term of sockholes, which, which is still used, which is senior crime officer. I'd never heard of the SOCO job, but the moment she told me about it, that was it. I was hooked. Um, I studied photography at night school and um, applied with a photography qualification. Um, you don't need to have a degree to do my job. We do have some people who do study forensics at university and get in with that get in getting that way um other people who've got background, scientific background um, or have done criminology. Um, it, it's a sort of job really where I think it's more down to your personality, uh, being able to talk to anybody at varying ranks in, re- in sometimes really, really stressful, highly emotional circumstances. Obviously strong stomachs needed. Um, <laughs> uh and just really innate ability just to sort of spot to to sort of work a crime scene and and it's so almost like a gut instinct that you, you sort of know sometimes not just finding clues that are there but also noticing what could be missing what isn't there um the job i mean i love the job it's the best job in the world um there can be times when you're working a long protracted crime scene when it can become very, very tedious, it's backbreaking, it's laborious, you're working in not pleasant circumstances. But yeah, I, I can't see myself doing anything else, so I absolutely love it. And I'm fortunate that I'm part time, so um, I've got the best of both worlds, I can do my job and write as well. So, my two favorite things basically. <laughs> yeah. and you can call your job your research, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely,
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm you know thinking back those 19 years then attending your first murder scene Mm. um I mean what sort of goes I mean because I you you know you read sometimes fiction about people you know new to the job going in you know young detectives going in for the first time and not coping how did you feel What, what apprehension did you feel going in there
2: absolutely terrified because the the level of responsibility that you know you're here, you're doing this job, you've got to get it right. There's no option to fail or make a mistake. Um, that is really overwhelming. Um, the other thing is as well is when you arrive at a crime scene, the first thing everybody wants to know is how long you're going to be. And that <laughs> pressure, when you've constantly got that, whether that's um, your crime scene manager ringing saying, where are you up to, how are you doing, or the SIO or my in or other Cops are chase. I mean, even the, the the police officer on the crime scene can. And I appreciate it's tedious and laborious and boring for them. But um, I worked a scene recently where I arrived and got suited up, walked in the address, took initial photographs, came back out, and he went, "Oh, have you done now?" And I'm like, "I won't be done for three days at least." And every time I came out, he kept saying, "Have you done now? Have you done now?" And it was getting very, very tedious. Um so yeah that 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 pressure I remember that from my first job as well. It was very much a case of well how long will you be? That pressure is quite overwhelming um but then you 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 quickly become engrossed in what you're doing and you don't have time really to think about anything else to think about how that body makes you feel you, you just it's just the whole process you just become engrossed in the process, and that's sort of your motivation if you like to get done what you need to do. Um, it's usually only afterwards when you start to digest what you've seen and what you've done and a bit of a come down afterwards that can be quite hard actually nobody sort of prepares you for that um nobody certainly warned me about that when I first started that you know you've going to be working in this murder scene for maybe six days you don't prepare you to, for how it feels when you suddenly you've done and dusted and you get home and life sort of has to go back to normal but it can't be normal because you've already changed because of what you've experienced if that makes sense yes yeah um,
1: and you, your brain's processing it as well isn't absolutely, it absolutely yeah yeah
2: it's um it's a lack of decompression i think afterwards um that you suddenly do go home or you you know you might call to tesco and you're walking around tesco and you think god i've spent the last few days doing god knows what I and mean, it's it's quite surreal um obviously it's something it's something now it's not a problem but at, at first the first say 12 months in the job yeah I did find that quite difficult to, to come to terms with
0: I, I found that when I was a, a young journalist and uh, sort of you know the the older you get in journalism the further away from the story you get it tends to be so when I was young yeah. I was going to I've, I've talked about it before on the podcast you know road traffic accidents and yeah. sometimes um some pretty grisly stories uh, mm. you know, arson and whatever else and, and some of the things that you experience live with you. Uh, and I used to find exactly that. You know, I'd go to Tesco and I'd see people enjoying the normal life, yeah. either argue with each other over what are they yeah. going to have for dinner or... Which
2: baguette? <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: And you're just thinking, that is so minor compared to what I've just gone through. It and is. It's, you feel yeah. out of step with the world. It takes about... I it used to take me a couple of days, really, to... To tune in, especially when I was then having to go into the studios of the radio station where I was working and banter with the DJs. Yeah. Uh, you know, after the news, and they're sort of going, uh, Hi, great mates, you know, that's kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you're thinking, I've just been to an RTA where I've seen a, a headless corpse because of the, the seat belt <laughs> on or something. And it's I'm just <laughs> now I've got Absolutely. to talk about the latest soap story or something. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it's very otherworldly, isn't it? It is.
2: It's, it, it's a, because it's not normal is it let's face it seeing that sort of thing as much as it becomes your bread and butter in your day to day you do have to appreciate the fact that it's not normal and sometimes you do get an awakening to that but then I think you we couldn't have this conversation and not mention gallows humor because mm-hmm. that is a, a lifesaver and that is why I think anybody um, anyone certainly works in the emergency services and jobs like that and probably yourself with your experiences gallows humor is the greatest sort of it, it sort of protects you in a way because you laugh about what you've seen and it's one way of um, coming to terms with it and digesting it and dealing with it, and coping with it. Um, and it's no disrespect whatsoever to that person you might be working with. Um, it, it's not at all that, it's nothing detrimental to the deceased. You know, you've got respect for that body at all times, but it's just a coping mechanism. And, you know, they always say, don't we laugh at a funeral and you cry at a wedding. Sometimes death is, it is funny. I mean there are some <laughs> there are some situations I've been in where it's yeah it's macabre but it's also side splittingly funny. Probably yeah. nothing I can share on this, but you do have to laugh, you really do. No, I can
0: I can I can well imagine. Um, but then you see, I feel at the moment, and I've talked about this on the podcast, in fact, even in our last podcast with T- Tina Baker, that some of this gallows humour some of the language that you would use in a in a group situation away from the scene yeah. maybe but back in the office yeah. is under pressure uh, culturally yeah, you know because younger people coming into the industry so you know, into your fields who uh, you know at the same stage you were 19 years ago would mm. blanch at the sort of gallows humor and find it disrespectful <laughs> absolutely. I yeah absolutely and I, you
2: know sometimes <laughs> I do I'll, I'll I'd be sort of having a conversation at home and I'll say something to my husband and I'll forget all one of my friends and forget that I'm not with work people. I'm with normal people, if you will. And he'll suddenly look at me and like, what is wrong with you? And it it (laughs) is only like... There's only my workmates would understand certain stuff that you would share, you look, when you, you suddenly realise when you're in polite conversation that maybe you've shared something that you should just be kept to the office and people are looking at you, usually pale-faced or green around the gills and sort of like, it's wrong with <laughs> you, there really is. But...
1: <laughs> but the irony is, though, that without the gallows humour, it could affect you more. So absolutely. absolutely, it would,
2: yeah, it would without a doubt. Like I say, <laughs> for me, it's a coping mechanism and it's a way of processing what you've seen um and it's something that I, I, I hope i've got across as well in the in the maya barton books that as much as she's dealing with sort of uh, these awful deaths and different difficult situations that there is very much especially when it comes to a bantering with the colleagues which is more in book two that 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 is it reflects real life it reflects how it would be for me working with my colleagues or in the office or working at a job
0: i i've always been intrigued you, you, I think you touched on it earlier, uh, going into a scene, the, the methodology, the, the you know, the uh, the importance of correct procedure, because, you know, at yes. the end of it, this could be admissible evidence or indeed yeah. it could be the way that somebody who has committed a crime could get off it because of the way that, you know, someone missteps in the crime scene and contaminates it in some way.
2: Yeah,
0: um, yeah. that d- does that weigh heavy when you when you're going in?
2: It can do it, it. Yeah. I mean, the main, the, the, the first step we always do is crime preservation, uh, crime. My COVID brain fog just come down again. Um, crime scene preservation is essential. Yes. And that's the first thing we will always, always make sure we do. And that's one of the reasons why obviously we are going in wearing our silly white suits and masks and double gloves and stuff. Uh, we'll use stepping plates. We'll use the yellow scene markers to highlight evidence that's in there. Um, so, it, and the main thing as well, and this is something which a lot of crime writers get wrong, is be aware that your crime scene belongs to the crime scene investigator. So you won't get a rogue detective going in there, having a mooch about and picking <laughs> stuff up. And you know, they, they always, always do a, that. Though. They, 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 the they always do it. And they always, <laughs> you always see them with a the pen as well. The pen that they've been chewing on will suddenly start mauling with things, I mean, you know that <laughs> that that's that wouldn't happen. Um, so, and, and in real life, we wouldn't sort of have a detective just randomly wandering around our crime scene. We have
1: lifting the, the tape up.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Um, oh, the, the, the tape, the crime scene tape, drives me insane. Honestly, you would be surprised by how many members of the public are crime scene tape blind. And, you know, mm. you, you've probably seen it yourself when these, like, road closed and police line do not cross and the number of people will go, can I not come through, love? No, can't. <laughs> it clearly says crime scene, do not cross. So, yeah, they, that, it's, that's, that's problematic when you're working on something outside. You will always try and get people who... And obviously, as well, today's generation, everyone's got a phone. Everybody wants to video. that's got something that's going on that gets really, really annoying as well. And yeah. um, that you don't have that sort of privacy, and you have to be very mindful if you're having a briefing outside. That usually you have to take it to a car, inside a car or a van, because people can be filming you and overhearing. So, yeah, there there are always usually problems, but nothing we can't usually overcome.
0: I've got I've got to ask as a as a former yeah. member of the of the press um how much of a pain are we
2: when we turn <laughs> up? Oh hey Jane I'm going to have to be really really polite now <laughs> No, 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 you, don't no, no oh. you don't need to be you don't need to be Yeah um I I've, I I've I've met some journalists who have been very very respectful um I've also met some who have gone too far the other way and are not and they become very very intrusive um, they will bend over backwards to try and get a photograph, which I don't understand why, because I think even if you do, say if we're pulling the body out of the canal, I think even if you do photograph it, you're not then going to be able to print that on your, no, no, you're right. on your website. and stuff. It can be very, very problematic because um, I remember once we were doing a body recovery of a chat from the canal and because the press were on the scene um, and we're there with the, the cameras and everything and the video equipment, we had to utilise one of our body sheets to cover up as we were moving in from the water, obviously for, for his, to, you know, give him some respect and some privacy. Yeah. And um, those body sheets aren't, you know, that's a piece of kit that costs quite a lot of money. Um, And then it's wasted then you can't reuse that. So it is, it can be annoying. Um, Sometimes it can be intrusive. I think it's a person, it's a personality thing, isn't it? Like any job and I appreciate they've got the job to do, but I have had some uh, clashes in the past. Um, Let's just say. And again, I think that's, really, that, that's also probably reflected. I've vented my anger with that with a journalist that Maya meets in, uh, in book one, he definitely dead So okay. yeah, it, it, it can be made difficult, it can be. Uh, but I say that the worst thing is as well um, is people with mobile phones who record mm-hmm. things. And it, it, I think it sort of shows society's mindset really to death is cheap and means nothing. People are very, very voyeuristic. I know we probably always have been um but um it, i remember instances where we we've had a chap who was trying to who was who was on the wrong side of a motorway bridge and was going to jump off and the police were trying to talk him down and people were filming that and photographing well, that and i just think it's you know that's it's not bad, right. yeah. we, had, we had a chap who um drowned recently and again people were Recording that, and one um, well, guy even posted it on Twitter. And I just think it's so tasteless. There's no respect and there's no regard for that individual or their family. So, yeah, that that get that sort of thing gets me really, really mad and incredibly swearing. I, <laughs> I've I was done bitterly. well. I've not sworn, and we've had that conversation now. And yeah. I didn't, I didn't utter a single expletive. I'm proud of myself.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I'm always proud of myself when I when I fail to. I mean, I have a certain reputation for being the Gordon Ramsay of BBC Television. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but um
0: the, 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 what 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 I find interesting with this is you know there's a, there is a sense that if you I mean we've heard this from, from authors before for goodness sake don't damage an animal in your books
2: oh.
0: uh, because you know you can have as many brutal
2: especially not uh, cats uh,
0: twisted oh, murders no, as you I like did. Yeah. Oh,
2: have you? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. And it's the one yeah. thing that triggers everybody, it seems.
2: And I know. And, and I was very aware because I know it was a conversation I'd had once about Mark Billingham when it, it, he wrote, I can't remember the title of the book now, but it was um, it was based basically on Croy, the uh, Croydon Cat Killer. And um, he was saying, like, the outrage. And and I'd see myself on various sites, people saying, I read every single one of Billingham's books, but I'll not be reading that. <laughs> and he was like, the facts that the book previous was all based on honour killings and nobody sort of raised an eyebrow but yeah I have committed the cardinal sin in book one unfortunately a cat does suffer but it was quick and painless and yeah honestly
0: <laughs> oh well
2: that's all right then and, and I mean don't get me wrong I'm an animal lover myself really mm. I adore animals and I would I can't count anybody who would you know harm like that but I I don't get the, it's all right to kill people, but don't harm the animals. It's a bit of a contentious <laughs> issue, but yeah, I do find it a little strange, you know.
0: Oh, it, it, it is. It's one of, those, one of those rules, isn't it, that, that, that sort of crept in, really. Um,
2: yeah.
0: And And in terms of... The taste and decency side of things. I mean, it's mm. interesting you're talking about the respect you you show the victims that and the yeah. the, 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 the corpses that you are you're dealing with. The, you yeah. know, when you're on a scene uh, and dignity offering them indignity and in death that they perhaps didn't have in life at any stage, yeah. or indeed as they met their end. So, um, in terms of when you're writing in that fiction side of it, what sort of line do you tread in terms of uh the detail the graphic detail
2: um I try to keep it as accurate as I can because um, I think that's what people are interested in and what people want to read and that's one thing Unfortunate about the experience I've got I do want to share that um I hope I do it tastefully um and I'm, I'm sort of maybe it's again my watch, mine, but I don't think there's really a lot to do with it because it's a general you know the way bodies sort of decompose and stuff it, it's it's nature it's real thing. so I don't have a problem about writing that I think the only thing I do I find taboo that I don't like and Um, I do spend a lot of time advising crime writers but the one thing I I, I sort of encourage people to steer away from is graphic sexual violence any description of that because Mm. I think it's you know there's there's a lot I know for a fact there's a lot of people out there who are um, twisted minds who that will um, that will sort of give them a thrill if you like for want of a better Mm -hmm. word and also I mindful of the fact that if somebody suffered with that, then the last thing they want in the comfort of their own living room is to then read that and have that graphic description. I think it's a case of less is more and if it is relevant to your storyline, you can suggest it's happened without going into that graphic detail. So that for me really that's the only thing I do find taboo Yeah. That's that's... the only thing I wouldn't really write about. But yeah, bodies I'll describe the bodies in graphic detail. (laughs)
0: I, I When I was younger, much, much younger, when I was a kid, in fact, we used to, have, I'm from Cambridge, we had uh, Cambridge Christmas lectures laid on by the university, which were, were pretty wonderful. And I remember going to one uh, spectacular talk, the most memorable I've ever been to, by Professor Austin Gresham, who uh, wrote, I mean, literally wrote the book on 70s forensics, I, I gather, okay. but was a home office pathologist as well as, you know, a, an expert yeah. in and he didn't blanch showing kids as young as eight years old the the crime scene photographs of, of bodies found in woods nine months after they've been murdered and this, yeah. and this. And I just remember that this particular case he got very excited about. I mean, he was he was wearing a sticky bow and he <laughs> he was your archetypal um, you know, late, late middle age. Uh, professor with the leather patches. patches kind of yeah
2: patches, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Bushy sideburns, slightly bald yeah, ones.
2: crazy eyebrows. Crazy <laughs> eyebrows, exactly. <laughs> and he-
0: <laughs> he got very excited. He goes, this one was a wonderful case. It's five months lying in the woods and it was in a terrible condition. Anyway, I at the skull. I mean, you know, and there were three different holes in it. And then I couldn't figure out how the, what what would have created you know, the impressions on, on the skull? And, uh, and then he said, I was in ridgens, I wonder if you know, it's a DIY store, I think is what they call them now. And uh, I saw a tile hammer and look oh, behold, the three shapes were on the end of the tile hammer. <laughs> And I knew it, Eureka, and I went round the store saying, I've solved it, I've solved
1: it. It's that joy, isn't it? That sort of scientific joy. I mean, I don't suppose you go back
0: to the office going, um, (laughs) I've solved it, I've solved it. It was absolutely, you know, and actually uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine was at that same talk and she she decided that that's what she wanted to do she ended up being a forensic accountant slightly different yeah. but yeah um the forensic side stayed
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah it is fascinating it is fascinating i mean even oh i say have been in 19 years every now and then there's still a job that pops up that is yeah it does sort of everyone will be around discussing it and yeah it's it really really is going back to like you say though hit sort of your experience with watching that talk when i first started we did Used to show um, new socos and new police officers. Um, we used to show them um, photographic albums where we'd been to crime scenes where there were bodies. And the idea was, it wasn't voyeuristic. It was more to sort of help desensitize them a little bit before they saw the first body. Before, me, I thought it was a good thing to do. Unfortunately, that's not something we're allowed to do anymore. Um, really. Yeah. One oh, thing we we had a, a, a new police officer who complained that the images were too graphic and disturbing. Apparently, so we can't do that anymore. But, but I don't, <laughs> don't think they're in the job anymore. For right. so me, job I, first, I, surely, if they think that. <laughs> yeah, I I thought it was. I mean, I when I first started, I was sort of sat down, my colleague sat me down with the, the body box and got all the photographs out and showed me. And I, for me, it really, really helps a lot because it, it does help prepare you. And you do need that desensitising before you, you, you know, go to your first body. And I think as well, um, go into your first one as soon as you can to sort of get it out of the way, because you want to know that as much as you think, you know, I'm not... I've got a strong stomach. I'm not squeamish. This sort, of, you actually don't know how you're going to cope until you're in that situation. So it's always good to get it over and done with, so it's not mm-hmm. the other thing in the room anymore. So,
0: but what about? Yeah, but, I mean, images are one thing. I guess the yeah. thing that they're not prepared for is the smell. No,
2: no, the the smell and the touch as well, the feel. Mm. Um, I know it sounds quite bizarre, but you always, even now it's surprising how cold a dead body does feel and to the point where um I, I had a bit of an issue the other day with well not the other day it's a few weeks ago now where we had a chap who was found with head injuries in quite a bad way he was taken to the intensive care unit and um, nobody knew who he was because he had no phone or ID on him or anything so um I was asked to go and photograph him and the fingerprint unit attended because they were going to fingerprint him so we'd know if he was on file we could find out who he was Mm -hmm. so we could get his family to him and I remember he had um, uh, abrasions and scarring on his knuckles so I photographed him as I say he's lying in this intensive care bed tried to get facial photographs as best as I can which is actually difficult when somebody's lying down in the bed and then went to touch his hand and was like oh his hands are warm not used to, I'm not used to this. And then the guy so from the fingerprint unit came along and they went to to pick his hands up to fingerprint him and was like, oh, he's warm. <laughs> that's almost like the opposite, isn't it? It is not yeah, it So what you yeah, were used to, you were used to the cold. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> know, so I'm, uh, I'm much, and that's the other thing is as well, I'm much happier. Happy, I don't know if that's the right word. I prefer to deal with dead people because I am absolutely no good. I hate having to go to the hospital. I'm no good with people who are in pain and suffering. It really, really upsets mm. me and it freaks me out and nerves me. Whereas once they're dead, then, you know, nothing else can harm them anymore. And then your main priority is sort of doing all you can to find out what's happened to them for, mm. for them, for their sake, obviously, and the families. But, yeah, i so are much more comfortable around dead people, I think. <laughs> Where where does the
0: job satisfaction lie for you in 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 this?
2: It's when you know, even just so it's it's not all about murders and the big major scenes. We obviously are bread and butter work is burglaries, car crime, that sort of stuff. And even now, if I get a fingerprint from a burglary that highlights an offender and somebody's locked up for it, that sense of satisfaction, that that thrill, never ever goes away. That is the best part of the job just generally knowing um, the passion that drives you is just wanting to help people. Um, And that as well, again, if you, if you can attend say a burglary where you've got a, a, person who's incredibly distressed because I mean but if you've been burgled you know the feeling it's horrible yeah I've been
1: burgled twice so I know it's it's
2: awful feeling the violation feeling of violation of upset and anger and then the paranoia because you're thinking you know you will I know for a fact I did when it happened to me stood at the front window watching people walk past thinking was it you was it you it's awful and being able to spend time with somebody and reassure them and help them um, again, that that's that's what drives you. That's what motivates you. That's what gets you out of bed in the morning, gets you in work. Um, just knowing uh, that justice has happened—that's that's a fantastic result.
0: Yeah, and, um, I mean, you're working. I mean, I know Manchester well. I have worked there for mm-hmm. for nine years. Um, it is one of the great. I mean, it's one of the great cities of the UK. Clearly, one of the one of the, yeah. world, one of the yes. world cities, culturally. <laughs> it's incredibly diverse it is yeah. so terribly troubled in certain areas er- particular mm-hmm. certain areas but uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of a raw city still it has that energy that has carried through from the 19th century it feels to me through the 20th and into the 21st that's still there a sort of swagger uh, but a lot of it has a criminal mythology as well there's a there's an awful lot of mythologizing around the gangs that used to be there and still are the the whole when I moved, you know, when I was thinking about moving to Manchester, the thing that used to pop in my mind was the name Gunchester, which was you know how it was associated in the eighties and nineties. Um, so you must see things that I mean, say if you were in in the job, I don't know, rural Scotland, you probably you know you're seeing a lot more than someone who's uh, in a similar role with um, Scottish police or something in the in the Highlands or something.
2: Absolutely. Um, I, I think you, you're referring to the, the days, years gone by, when it was known as Gunchester. Gunchester, and indeed, we did yeah. have a lot of, uh, We did have a lot of crime like that and still do. I, what I would say is I don't think we're any different from any city. I think most cities are the same. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, the, the sort of crime that we see, you you wouldn't get in the sticks. Um, so we, we do get things like shootings in particular and a lot of stabbings. So, yeah, we do get a lot more... Um, that high-level crime than somebody maybe in a rural setting would get. Um, so it, it, likewise as well, I suppose it depends where you're based. And one of the, I was advising a crime writer who'd asked me um, about somebody what would happen if they drowned in the sea. That sort of thing um, I wouldn't, ex- I've never experienced. I couldn't comment on. So every everyone's different areas are going to have different sort of crime levels, if you like.
1: The appeal of crime in rural areas, so crime fiction set in rural areas, where yeah. if, if you thought that all the crime fiction you read was reflective of real life, you wouldn't want to live in the Highlands of well, Scotland. Well, who, yeah.
0: who would want to be Absolutely. a slako in, uh, in or socko in um, in midsummer?
2: No. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, then again, maybe you, you look at those settings, and it's it's is it not easy then to write about that because you haven't got then things like your CCTV as we were talking earlier going back to really? Christie's day mm-hmm. you know maybe it's maybe <laughs> it's easier to write in fact yeah I, I might suddenly change Myra and move her from a different force I might send her to yeah the back of beyond isle of
1: man that might
2: make book three yeah that might make book three easier she's gonna have a transfer thanks for that well, idea going on
1: holiday and it'll be a crime so um, every week on the podcast, I ask a completely random question that's not related to anything about what you do or your job or your book or anything. So my random
2: question this week is, do you collect anything? Uh, books, as you can see behind me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, books. And I've recently just started getting back into crystals as well because my teenage daughter has become quite obsessed with crystals. And we have a lovely shop near us that sell a, a lovely wild... Uh, array and variety so yeah books and crystals i would say Fantastic. i think you have
1: to be careful don't you if you tell somebody you collect something because this happened to a friend of mine she she dropped it in conversation that she quite liked penguins <laughs> and then every christmas and birthday she gets <laughs> penguins, she fluffy penguins penguins on cushion covers
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> then it's like when you were a kid and you you'd get something new for tea if you made the mistake of saying i like that then you would get force fed it <laughs> nearly every night and he was sick of it so it's about the same thing isn't it no Natalie I think you're right don't tell people what you like
1: yeah I think I've done that to my children actually because and then eventually they'll mm. say um you know how we have fajitas every week <laughs> 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 could we have a week off now absolutely <laughs>
0: I want to put it on record, though, that I do collect Bitcoin. So uh, if anyone wants...
1: I you are going to <laughs> so say golf clubs.
0: <laughs> no, that's true, too. <laughs> that's very, very true. I mean, I, I've got to ask, um, obviously, writing is... You know, you're in a position of being part-time. You've got basically the two jobs you love doing, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. What else do you do to relax?
2: Um... I don't know, barely. Just, just normal stuff. Reading, television, spending time with family. Um, um, Pre-COVID, I like to go to the gym. Um, so yeah, just no, normal stuff really. Very dull and boring. I also like gardening as well. So this time of year makes me a bit sad when uh, you can see all the flowers starting to die off and autumn's on its way. And yeah, I, I, I happily fast forward straight through to the next spring now. To to <laughs> sort of yeah,
0: no I know what you mean I, uh, the, the thing about gardening though in crime books is that it you know no one ever goes out gardening without discovering something terrible <laughs> <beneath> <laughs> yeah, yeah. watch
1: out what you dig up in the garden
2: <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> um okay it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you if people want to get hold of you for your advice and indeed to mm-hmm. uh, learn more about what you do and your books where where do they find you
2: uh, so I'm on Twitter, um, I've got a Facebook author page, or they can email me at contact at It's been oh, I'm also on Instagram as well, although I don't really understand that. to get my daughter to set up <laughs> for me. <so. laughs> that's yeah. quite a
1: common thing. A lot of our authors say that. They say, well I'm there, but I don't know what I do with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, if we could only master it. Um well look, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've we've learned so much. Thank you
2: very um, much for having me on.
0: Well, our, our very pleasure. welcome, and, and uh, <laughs> we wish you every success with. Well, how do we? Offer
1: yeah, we look forward to book two.
0: How do we wish <laughs> you <laughs> success you. On, on the day job? I don't know, but we wish you success in Ah, <laughs> <on the production.
2: laughs> oh, thanks very much. That's very kind of you. Thank you both,
0: Kate Vendelow, who has made a big impression on me in, in the sense that you know to be excited to go in to do the sort of work she does. Takes a special kind of person.
1: I yeah, think. no, I agree. Yeah, it was um, fascinating talking to her.
0: Absolutely. So um, let's, you know, we'll wrap up the show shortly. But uh, what, what? How do you reflect on this week? Because I, I was making, you know, it's one of those weeks where I was feeling like I was making good progress, and then, you know, illness has struck, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of grinding into a halt somewhat.
1: Um, I'm trying to think. So we've, we yeah we've had a reasonably busy week haven't we? Because we had because of bloody Scotland you know whenever we go away there's always a bit of a backlog in in sort of the the everyday stuff that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of ferrying of children to and f- back to school and back. And you had a a fun match in uh, Manchester, didn't you?
0: Oh uh, well, we lost to West Ham and then subsequently <laughs> lost to to uh, I can barely bring myself to say it Aston Villa at the weekend. I wasn't at that game, thank goodness, but I was at the Wednesday one and I'm due to go on Wednesday again for Champions League, but I, I don't think um, I'm going to be in any fit state. So, uh, yeah, look, it's 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 busy. Um, it always is. And we have so many books coming out in the next few weeks. We, we've had a, a lot of effort um, behind some of those autumn awesome releases. Because, yeah. I mean, with every book we release, we make new contacts within the industry, whether it's bookshops, bloggers, mm. that sort of thing. And so the... The network is widening, and the number of people we need to. I mean, I was struck by just how many books you sent off this
1: week. <laughs> I think I posted a picture on Twitter of the of the pile of books. This was Ollie Jarvis's The Genesis Inquiry. So, um, Ollie has um, he's got a sort of a, f- a freelance PR um, c- consultant working with us on his book, and she she sent me a list of um, media contacts and bloggers and reviewers to send the book out to. And I've already had to ask uh, twice now for more books from Clays for these sort of um, advanced copies. And the pile was about waist high. It was. And so when I went into our local post office, our local post office, the lady's there now and they were really well. And they see me in the queue and I can see that look of fear they have on their faces. It's like, oh, gosh, it's the book lady. And I went in and I said, I'm really sorry, I've got so many books for you. And they were so nice. They said, don't worry, this is our job, this is what we do. But it did take her about 20 minutes. And the people behind me in the queue were looking...
0: Murderous. Oh, they were. And imagine if they have just come off a petrol queue and they go to the post office. <laughs>
1: it's a good job they don't sell petrol in the post office. No,
0: it is, it is. So, I mean, you know, even the space of a week, we couldn't have done the journey to Scotland if the petrol <gasps> or the diesel had It arrived. doesn't
1: bear thinking about, it, does it?
0: No, I've got sort of... Two thirds of a tank left, um, but I am starting in my mind. I am rationing it. Obviously, I don't feel well enough to go out at the moment, anyway, and that's actually a small mercy. But you know, getting up to see my family, even one hundred miles away, in round trip terms, um, you know, you've got to ration those those visits. Now. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I was lucky. I managed to fill the tank just before the the panic set in, and um, but you know, I am been calculating how many school trips can I do and get food while I am doing the school trips before we run out because our nearest uh, shop that sells food is a three mile walk away yeah so if it comes to it and there's no petrol in the whole of the UK we're going to have to walk for three miles to buy food
0: yeah six mile round six trip six mile round trip yeah alternatively we could go down to the wharf and ask hitch a lift on a boat maybe <sighs>
1: No, I did suggest that to my eldest child because we did walk to the shop um, fairly recently just to see how far it was. And I said, we should just stick our thumb out because it's along the canal, the walk. is It's a lovely walk. And, you know, hitch a lift. And I said, we'll get there about the same same time as if we were walking. And he said, no, don't do that, mother. <laughs> of course he said that. Yeah.
0: He's risk averse <laughs> in, in, in uh, so many ways. Anyway, you know, so it's going to be an interesting week with that shadow over the whole country. Um, in terms of you know what people can do and the stress of trying to find petrol there's none in our local town
1: no nope, no i was there this morning and uh, both petrol the main petrol stations there is another one which mm-hmm. i didn't pass but both were d- deserted
0: yeah yeah and uh you know i've got a, a a big agenda of of editing to do and you know should the voice recover and i'm not if i don't have the covid or whatever um, then I should get back to recording, but you know it's, it holds things up significantly. When you, sh- I mean, you cannot perform sounding like this. It's simple as that. I, I
1: could do it. I could be you. I could go down deep.
0: You could, but you try doing a
1: umphalumper s-
0: <laughs> with the way I feel at the moment. I couldn't possibly do a Merseyside accent if I, if I tried. It's Chicken just...
1: and a can of coke.
0: Can <laughs> <Kind> of what? Chicken and a can of coke.
1: See, you can just about do yeah,
0: it. Yeah, but I couldn't sustain it for more than about <laughs> five minutes, which means I think we should come to an end now. Next week, who have we got lined up?
1: Um, next week. Now I've got I've completely gone blank. Of course, it is going to be the next book we're publishing, Harry Fisher.
0: Wonderful. Be sure your sins.
1: Be sure your sins. Uh, the reason I went blank is because um, I was trying to arrange the uh, interview with Harry, and I said. Oh, it'll be the week after next because your book is publishing after that. And he replied and said, I think you've lost a week. Is there some sort of Staffordshire time zone you're in?
2: Yeah, So much. I was
1: a bit confused. So yes, it'll be Harry Fisher next week.
0: That's wonderful. Harry will be a great guest and it is a fabulous book. Uh, blew my socks off when I read it. And increasingly, that's the case. With the books that we're publishing, you know, uh, we are.
1: He hasn't got many socks left.
0: No, I don't. You're right because you keep losing them. We're in a basket full of <laughs> full of odds and sods that come out the wash and never find their partners.
1: No, the, the yes, don't get me started on the odd sock pile. We have a massive pile of odd socks.
0: It's one of the foibles of our homework books. <laughs> anyway, we digress. Thank you so much for uh, putting up with my voice. Uh, I'm putting Hobart, it up with mine, Rebecca Collins's voice. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for further details about our authors and all the products that we have out there, all the books.
1: And one last thing, we have a competition coming soon, so details of that will be revealed next week.
0: They will, they will. been busy uh, creating a wonderful themed competition, uh, which I'm sure we'll all get excited about. I want to win this prize.
1: I want to win every single prize, and I never do.
0: Yeah, just as well. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hoback Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hoback online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit.